Welcome to the Big Mike Fund Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Welcome, Sam Silverman. Hi, Sam. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Sam, tell us a little bit about you. Um, I know you're an expert as a, as a passive investor, and you've done a great amount of due diligence on other sponsors and operators, and we'll focus this interview on how to, spon- how to vet a sponsor or a fund manager or, or an operator. Before we do that, uh, could you share a little bit about you? Where do you live, family, cats, pets, kids? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I live in Tampa, Florida, with longtime girlfriend and uh, two dogs. So moved down from New York City to Tampa, played baseball at the University of Tampa, um, ended up getting a job in, in tech sales and staying down here. Um, the cost of living, the weather, it's, it's not a bad place to be, especially relative to New York right now. So definitely like it as a home base. Um, but kind of background on, on myself specific to real estate investing, um, you know, started how a lot of people do, right? I bought eight single family houses out of college, right? Right out of college, started doing fairly well in software sales. Um, kind of my, my main background is building and scaling up global, you know, global sales orgs for tech and software companies. So started doing pretty well out of college, right? Got into single family, quickly understood the value of things that pay you while you're not working and you don't have employees for, right? Super appealing in that sense. Um, then quickly realized how much of a pain single family was. So, you know, look to move on from that pretty quickly. That's an awesome introduction. Really have a great appreciation for what you said. As I'm, I, 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 I live and breathe New York City. I'm here. And, and uh, uh, I was just in Tampa at the Collective Genius Mastermind a few weeks back and love Tampa. It's a great, great city, great market. Uh, the weather, obviously, uh, you, you see no snow in the winter. If you, are, if you don't no enjoy, enjoy the snow, then it's, it's a great place and definitely um, a better business environment in, 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 from many points of view. But uh, as far as the, the technology and the uh, uh, technology sales, and again, dear to my heart, I spent almost 15 years in that industry so i can understand and then the final point just a quick comment it, it's funny how the smartest investors including you gravitate from investing in single family residential which is absolutely nothing wrong with that class uh, except for a bunch of smaller assets um, to more passive investing but more into multifamily storage commercial sure. assets because the scaling is pretty hard. Some people do build portfolio of single families, but they need, it becomes a business of its own just to manage that portfolio. So uh, so how did you gravitate? What, what was the, the move as a passive investor? When did you realize, how long did it take you? How many properties did you have to buy to realize uh, managing a portfolio of single families is, is work. It's a little bit of a business um, and you can do well, especially in this market when residential is doing phenomenally. Yeah, so they actually all end up turning out pretty well in terms of, of when I bought them. I'm actually selling my final three of them or going to the market this week. Um, so very excited to kind of wash my hands of those. But I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, people don't realize that I'm a big believer in headspace and mindshare. 
right? You have like a very limited amount of, you know, focused work you can do on high priority items and being in sales, being in a commission equity driven type role, you make your big earnings by doing very, very well in your role, right? Say, for example, think of, you know, an, an enterprise seller in software, say their package is $200,000 on track earnings, but $100,000 in base, $100,000 in variable. The difference between, you know, a top rep and a bottom rep can be one rep making 130 and worrying about their, worrying about their job with a top rep making 350, 400 and having, you know, a very, very good career trajectory, even if not the same place, just overall career stability by being in, you know, a top salesperson in, in a tech role. So kind of to close the loop on that, I think the biggest thing that I realized was that it was taking up a lot of time, right? One, the transaction for buying each house, taking out a loan, refinancing the loan, going through the whole process of closing to then make, you know, two, $300 a month in a transaction, right? Where conceptually it made sense. They were still good deals. Like the numbers lined up well, but then you realize you have a tenant turn and your entire cash flow for the year is gone. And I'm a very big believer in systems and process and things you can control, right? I think buying people who bought single family years ago have done very well on it, but it's not systematic, right? I want things that you can go and have a clear business plan of how do you increase the value and force appreciation through it. Where single family, it's dependent on the square footage, how much the person actually likes the house and they go walk through it, right? There's a lot of things that are fairly emotional and the market can, can dictate that. When looking at these larger assets, you can take the operational backgrounds people have and go systematically force appreciation by buying the right deal, right? And it, it, it's all a giant math equation, right? People who focus in single family, it's a, it's, it's a lot tougher to, to one scale and to two be as predictable with how, with how it's going to be because it is so market dependent versus being valued like a business. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, yeah, I know a lot of guys who do this and have substantial volume who, who, who include large amount of single family wholesaling, sure. fix and flips, and it is a business. And the, uh, the economy of scale kick, kick, kick in, but it is hard to obtain the economy of scale in that business, especially if you are semi-passive because uh, you either outsource all the property management to third party and um, your return on time at the end of the day is, 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 is just as important as return on investment. So your return on investment could be good, but return on time is, 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 or, or effort is, yeah. is, it doesn't scale. That's, that's, I think we're on the same page there. Now let's shift into the commercial space. Well, may it be multifamily, may it be storage, may it be uh, office, shopping. Re so what have you invested in? What, what, do you, what have you found to be interesting with sectors? Uh, let's start with sectors, especially now. What, what are you looking at today? And then let's shift the conversation into how do you vet the fund managers, the sponsors, the operators, people who you wind up knowing, liking, and trusting and writing them a check? Yeah, so the bulk of my focus has been in value-add, multifamily, primarily class, you know, high C to low A, um, most of it being C and B class properties where there's a value-add component, right, delta between current and market rents, opportunity to improve the expense side of it through efficient operations, right, really the focus has been there. Um, I've done a few self-storage deals as well down in Texas, um, just for, for a diversification play, right? For me, I have holdings in, you know, Florida, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, and currently looking also in 
you know, uh, Utah and the Carolinas and also uh, Georgia, right? So kind of being diversified in terms of unit counts, asset classes, right, in terms of C, B, or A, and then also some self-storage as well. So really giving myself, you know, I don't write massive checks for each deal, but, you know, typically one, two shares per deal to allow myself to be diversified within the markets that I'm currently in, right? Kind of breaking up the overall capital spend into a lot of deals versus going super, super large into one or two deals. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's music to my ears. I'm, I'm a fund manager and a capital allocator, and um, uh, there, there are benefits to do both. So if you can write a bigger check, you have negotiation power. So for sure, you can get better terms by writing a bigger check. And on the hindsight of that, uh, you're not diversified when you do that. So if you can do both, you could do well on both fronts. But if you get to pick, write a bigger check, get better terms, or diversify, in my book, it's always diversify. Because you never know what's going to go bad or what's going to go do great. You can have a home run deal or you can have a strikeout deal and you're barely you know, happy to get your money out. So, and what's really fascinating, and I'd love to hear your experience, um, uh, picking high quality sponsors with great deals is not easy. It's almost like it takes, I don't know, you gotta go through yeah. 20 people to find one. Uh, that trade, finding high quality operators, so the ability to execute, because what you just said, value add multifamily, class C plus into A minus, a lot of the success of these projects is dependent on the ability to execute construction on budget, on time, raise rents. And as simple as it sounds, a lot of people are trying to do this. I've seen horror stories and, and I've seen massive uh, successes and it's all in the difference between the, the operator. So any, any thoughts and comments on this? Yeah, so kind of how I found the people who I've invested with personally, kind of built relationships with there, all of it's been from listening to podcasts, right? I think that everyone goes into podcasts to highlight the work they're doing, build credibility, build a brand, right? So they're, they're kind of talking through their overall business plan, right? How do they think, you know, and then from there, reaching out to operators, like, hey, the, the podcast is a sniff test, right? One, after listening to it, do I have one to want to have a conversation with this person, right? If yes, get in the phone with them and then really start digging in as to what are their core principles? What are their philosophies? And I'm a big believer in betting on the people all day long versus the deal, right? The deal still has to check out, but betting on the people matters so much more to me. I think with my background in sales leadership, in tech and software, hiring is a massive piece of that job. Right. I've realized if I hire good people, my life is very, very easy. If I hire people who are not good or people who are good but cause problems elsewhere, my life is very, very not easy. So what I've realized is that really interviewing the sponsor is a crucial piece of it. And I think something really important to understand is what do they give up to do what they're doing today? Right. Because if you look at people who were had an average median salary type role. And now they're going to do this, right? They may be happy making an acquisition fee and that's it, right? That may be enough to, to live off of for them. I want to see someone who had a operational background of some kind, a deep financial background of some kind, and that they flushed out their team with people who support that, their gaps, right? Very clear delineation of roles between people in that group. And also that they're giving something up to go do this. 
right? Like I'd rather go invest with someone who left a half million dollar a year software sales job versus someone who's making 60, 80 grand a year doing whatever they're doing. Not saying anything's wrong making 60, 80 grand a year. It's a very respectable living, but I want to see them making some kind of a sacrifice so that their bar of success is so much higher for what they and their family need to need to really survive. Because that's how, if there's nothing on the line, right? Like there's not really a, a, a big skin in the game for them outside of marginal reputation. Like when you ask as well is one, were they also personally investing into the deal, right? You want to see people investing into the deal well above the acquisition fee, right? The acquisition fee is a million dollars deal and they're investing a million dollars. It's not really, yeah, it's a it's million dollars of earned income, but it's not really a million dollars they didn't have before. Like you can wipe your hands clean with that deal and be done with it and have a net loss of zero outside of some reputational damage. And you want to see them actually having cash and deal themselves. You want to see them having real skin in the game um, and leaving something behind. Yeah, great comments. Really love everything you said. <laughs> I'll just add one more. Um, one more small thing to everything you said, because everything you, you, you mentioned is, is absolutely 100% solid. Uh, we, we, we like to do exactly the same. You always start with people. I don't even care what the deal is. I won't even look at the deal yeah. if it comes from people I don't know. It's bright and shiny objects. There are always deals with brilliant marketers who will put up 25% IRR, 30% IRR. They'll throw these crazy numbers left and right. doesn't even matter uh, uh, what the deal is behind. You can make the math work if you yep. if your assumptions are aggressive right so it starts with people um and in our underwriting it's funny you mentioned this i i i go through three steps always um, um sponsor operator and the more institutional they are the better it is of course you want you want to work with rising stars too from time to time but you can't always um uh you know you can't spend too much money throwing at the rising stars because some of them will actually not rise so you need to have enough of the proven track record institutional operators who at least make your life a little bit more um stable uh but what what, what i did want to add uh to that well let me sorry let me just finish because uh, what, what you said made total sense but um uh, there's a there's a critical piece that i i kind of like to to uh to put it's alignment of interest the, these are the key words so the operators that have ton of fees up front, acquisition fee, um, development fee, uh, sure. and, and so on and so forth, and heavy upfront fees that dilute the deal. So the deals that have those drive me absolutely nuts. The deals that align the interest and have a greater promote for the sponsor after they reach certain IRR hurdle, they're absolutely fine to me because they get invested to a certain rate of return. So just that alignment of interest is a key comment. But back to the underwriting, uh, I agree with you 100%. It's always people. Then you look at the economics of a deal, at least in my book. And then the third one, is there a fair split or shake? Is there a alignment sure. of interest? So, but yeah, let's just... no. Go, go, go. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I wasn't saying like the, I think having an acquisition fee and having some kind of management fees is fair. I think they need to be within bounds right? Like they, they need to keep the lights on. If you have a sponsor putting up a quarter million, half million dollars in hard earnest money, they should be rewarded for that in doing so, right? For securing the deal and, and vetting it and having enough to keep them going. But they should not be making, you know, the, the Cardone Capital type fee structures of, of this. They should really be focused around their alignment of interest where they deliver for this for the, the investors. They're paid accordingly for it. Like the bulk of the GP promote should always come from 
delivering well above the, the hurdles in the waterfall. So I have no issue with, you know, reasonable acquisition fees and reasonable carry fees, but they should be aligned in the sense that they're making their money at the end once they deliver big for the investors. That's right. That's that's exactly right. I think great minds think alike. I, I share exactly the same thoughts. Um, the other key, I don't know, what do you think about these pro forma underwriting spreadsheets? So have you looked at them? Because most of the deals, the sponsors will give you offering memorandum or the PPM or the OM, and then the, the, the all kinds of figures there. But do you typically go in dig into the OMs on a specific deal, sorry, into the um, pro forma spreadsheets? Because assumptions drive all those numbers. If assumptions are aggressive, all the numbers may be way aggressive. So I'll typically ask for a few assumptions, right? You want to see the rent growth, right? They're not putting, you know, five, 10% rent growth a year, right? You want to see the expenses going up according to, you know, typically right under rent growth or, or at parity. Um, you want to see economic vacancy where they're modeling versus where their whole portfolio is today with some buffer room. Um, you also want to see, you know, reserves when looking at the CapEx budget to go renovate the property itself. And then, you know, you really want to see like what overall buffer room are they leaving themselves in certain areas to get where they are when looking at pro formas and comps, right? All these things to, to just be realistic and conservative, right? I'd rather see a 15% IRR with some buffer room versus a 25. That is, you have to nail every single thing, especially when working with investors. I'd rather give them ample buffer room to hit their numbers, right? Versus, you know, under-promising, over-delivering. Another big piece of it as well is you want to see some form of cap rate decompression in the deal, right? Most deals that we'll look at, you're saying you're buying at a peak and you're selling it in a recession, right? So that way that you can have all these things go wrong and still have a shot hitting your pro forma. But I also view that as if these things don't go wrong, there's massive, massive upside in the deal to overachieve those numbers. But I'd rather give the investors, hey, we feel confident in these numbers for these eight reasons. But if these things don't happen in the worst case scenarios that we modeled, we actually have big upside in this deal to not only hit, but overachieve these numbers for you. Yeah, phenomenal comments, Sam. I greatly appreciate that sensitivity study to the cap rates uh, and what happens when the cap rates, uh, like you're saying, they, comp they uh, expand instead of compress. Uh, you never know what the environment is going to look like. And today's day and age, especially today, uh, the CapEx budget and the construction budget uh, risk is just so much higher yeah. because of the inflationary pressures. And we don't know whether it's going to taper down or it's going to continue. And, and uh, plenty of sponsors actually have got hurt quite a bit uh, as they uh, didn't budget for uh, these heavily escalating expenses, both labor and the construction material site. And, and, and what happens then? You either have a capital call or uh, you have some kind of dilutionary situation and, and uh, we can't execute the strategy. And, and, and some of these projects, they've been sold based on higher numbers because otherwise they couldn't raise capital. This is the, 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 the most fascinating part of this business is uh, sponsors have to wear the hat of the marketer. At the same time, they have to wear the hat of the operator. And uh, you can't wear the hat of the operator until you complete and raise capital. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, you want, that, that's why you want to see the, 
the track record, right? Another thing that I always ask every sponsor is like, explain to me a situation that went awful, right? Awful situation. That doesn't be real estate related, but just something that did not go right. How do you handle it and why? Like walk me through step-by-step what you did, because that way, even if they've only been, you know, in the, in this for a few years and they've, and they've had all their things go well, there are definitely things that in life they've handled that are adverse situations. And you more so you want to see how someone reacts, right? You want to see how does this person handle things when they're under massive pressure in a bad situation? Because at some point in a deal, something will go not as planned. Even if the whole deal collectively performs extremely well, but above projections, there will be something that goes wrong. And handling that in a cool, collected way that's rational and decisive is super important. And I think that that can be lost a lot, especially recently, right? The market's been in a great place for a while now where people who are up and coming may have only seen the good of it, right? So kind of pulling from other experiences in which they may have not seen the good, but it may have been a sticky situation, helping you know, the investors and sponsors understand how this person can react when things hit the fan is really important to oh, making sure your interests are aligned and that you have confidence in this person. Yeah, great comments. Uh, really wonderful comments. Uh, you learn a lot more from mistakes or from bad experiences than, um, than from successes. It's, it's just how the world operates. And the questions you're asking are the right questions. They're both fundamental questions uh, to fill out the, the person and, and understanding what was their worst deal? I mean, how did you handle it and what did you learn from it? Because that's, these are real lessons in, 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 the, in, in the world. Uh, if you invested a few years back in the market kind of took care of all the, uh, the vices of execution, the weaknesses of, of that, you still done very well. Uh, it's, it's, it's been easy. Yeah. Not necessarily perfect, but it's been easy in the last few years. And those are the deals we're, we're trying to buy right now is people who have owned properties for, you know, five, 10 plus years, and they're not operators, right? They're people who bought well, but they're not operators, right? Those are the deals that we're looking at picking up right now, where people bought properties back in 2005, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it was. And the market has taken it up so much since then, they never had to actually operate the deal well. So there's still a lot of value left to be created in those deals today. So that's where we're really targeting right now. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great comment. We actually have a deal now. And I'm not going to spend much more time, but we have, we're still going to do very well in the deal. But the operator hit the, uh, the limitations of their ability to operate the property. Uh, in a COVID environment where the collections issue is an issue. And if you yeah. have a C type of property market, uh, ability to collect uh, during the pandemic has been, it's been a lot of hard work and it's not, it, it's not easy hanging fruit. And uh, too many people just, they, they don't want to fight the, the, the difficult war, which takes uh, at times uh, greater ability to execute. Some people just yeah. can acquire, do the work and then things can come to a crawl when it comes to, to the ability to lease it up and to execute. And anyway, I've, I've seen these deals and I can, I can certainly relate to that. And I can I almost laugh at this because we have a deal like this, it's exiting and we're getting good rate of return. I'm not complaining as a, as an investor in the deal, but it could have been even better if the sponsor was able to, if the COVID didn't hit, they would have done better because collection issues wouldn't be the same 
uh, the way they are in a class CS cell. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting time for it because I think people are getting weeded out right now as well in terms of operators who aren't strong operators, right? There are people who got lucky, there are people who bought well, but I think buying well doesn't always mean you can operate a deal well either. I think kind of really understanding what happens when things go wrong, how do you handle it, making sure a deal as well that has multiple exit plans, right? Most deals that at least I see are, you know, five-year hold periods, buy, repurpose the assets, restabilize it, sell it at a profit, where we really look for that, hey, say things go completely off the wall, that we can still hang on to the deal and cash flow a certain amount, because what if we have to hang on to it, right? What we'll, we'll be going to do shares to the investors, if it makes sense to hang on to the deal past the five-year period, right? Does it still make sense? So I think having multiple exit plans is crucial, even if you only use plan B, you know, 1% of the time, it's crucial to have that because your investors then, you, you can tell them confidently that, hey, we've thought out these different scenarios. And we not only have one way, we have multiple ways to ensure we're being a fiduciary to your capital. Because no matter how much money you have, right? 50 grand is still 50 grand, 100 grand is still 100 grand, right? It's still a giant chunk of money to go place into, into a deal and have set up for a period of time that you want to at least make sure the people you're giving it to have thought out what are the worst case scenarios and how do we go handle these events and, and how do we make sure that we're still being a fiduciary to you in that period of time? Yeah. Yeah. Great comments. Again, uh, it, it, it's funny you say that, but uh, most um, operators have a pretty straightforward plan based on a successful pro forma. And typically uh, if it's a multifamily asset, what are the exit strategies? There are only two. Right, you basically refi and return capital, and you hold on for cash flow, or you sell and you, yep. you jam up the profits. But what happens when you can't get the NOI to be where it is? It becomes a pickle. Refi gets more painful. You don't you don't have the same valuation, and on the other side, you can't sell it for the same price. So uh, that ability to take it from, I would call it eighty percent to hundred percent, or to even ninety five percent. That's the big risk. And is there a plan C? Uh, it's not e trivial to have a plan C, but I've seen this. We had one of the sponsors, uh, property in Chicago. They've struggled for a couple of years. They overran the budget, had all kinds of delays. And um, for a while, we were a little bit disappointed um, that they couldn't get the occupancy up or the collections up over, over 85%. And it took actually very experienced institutional sponsor uh, kind of tightening up the belt and saying, I'm going to stand up for um, what I've done in the past and working hard and having his people spend more time on this property, even though it wasn't as much fun to get it over 90%, to get the valuation up, to be able to exit in a decent manner. And these sure. situations do happen and these projects can, can happen. And some, and some sponsors, if they don't have enough financial motivation, they're just not going to spend the time on this project, but instead they're going to, they're going to work on another one. And this comes down to the character. Will they actually yeah, it's, do what they say? Yeah, it, it's the character and it's also the, also the reputation, right? Because that, that's what I was saying is like, do they have something to lose by washing their hands of it and walking away, right? And it's more than financial because especially in this industry, especially, you know, the being someone who sponsors deals and brings in their own investors to deals, your reputation is everything when you look at it. So you need someone who has something to lose what they're operating on. 
So they can't just go call it, even if financially it makes more sense to them personally to go spend their time elsewhere, right? You need them to have that being tied to them where it's a massive hit, even not, not just the deal itself, but their overall business. If this deal doesn't perform or that they don't do everything they, in, they can in their power to make it have a best shot at performing. So by them being, you know, having something in line, having something to risk, having a good brand, there's a massive, massive, massive value in your brand and reputation in this space. Yeah, makes total sense. It's brand reput- reputation is something, what do they say? It takes years to build and you can destroy yeah. it overnight. So Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the biggest thing is if you look at this business, it's it's made by repeat investors, right? It's it's made by referrals. Um so doing right by people, even if it's not a massive value gain to you in that short term, the long term it pays off in spades if you do it the right way. And if you don't, it it comes back to you very, very quickly. Yeah, it goes around. Sam, I appreciate your wisdom, your sharing. Um how would the folk how would folks get a hold of you if you if they were interested to um reach out? Uh, is there a website, email? How, how do you like people reaching out to you? Yeah, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, I can send you my LinkedIn to, to include in the notes as well. Um, my website, silvermancapital.co or my email, sam at silvermancapital.co. Thank you kindly for sharing that. Any final uh, parting thoughts, good book, whatever you want to share? So... I think actually a really, really good book in terms of, it's not real estate related at all, but I think it under, helps understand how and why people think and make the decisions they do. So there, there's a few. Um, one is persuasion, yep. right? This, the second is um, the art and science of winning and losing, right? And kind of helping understand just how people think. And the more you have conversations with people, especially around raising capital or sourcing capital or work with investors, understanding how to profile people and kind of understanding where they're coming from matters a ton, right? Your perspective can change in a big way from understanding why someone thinks the way they do. Like I can give, you know, two quick examples, right? Person A, you know, old money, right? They come from a family that's been super wealthy, right? They're likely, they, they've never seen the other side of it where they may be more likely to be aggressive and take risks, right? Where person B who comes from, nothing, right? Entirely self-made, brought themselves up from, from, you know, from nothing. They may be more risk adverse because they think, hey, I can lose all of this, right? There's still, so just understanding where someone's coming from, I think is the biggest thing to make sure that your interests mutually align. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I agree with you. These are great wisdoms and for sure, applicable in software sales, applicable in any kind of consultative sales process, no matter what you are, even if you're not selling, even if you are just educating, uh, you definitely want to carry the message to who you, whoever you're talking to, because the values are different and they're the way they understand and translate uh, what you say are different. So uh, agreed, great books, persuasion. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that book. It's a, it's a great book. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.